Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen, and I'm joined today by my fellow co-founder, Rick Wilson. Hey, Rick. Hey, Reed. Great to be back. Also joining me today, Lincoln Project Senior Advisor, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for coming on board. You bet, man. Before we get going with our conversation today, I just want to take a moment to read a statement that we released about where The Lincoln Project is and where we're going. The Lincoln Project has retained the law firm of Paul Hastings to investigate allegations of inappropriate behavior by John Weaver as part of a comprehensive review of our operations and culture. The review process is currently underway. We are committed to creating a positive, diverse, and inclusive workplace environment at the Lincoln Project, and inappropriate behavior by anyone associated with the organization will not be tolerated under any circumstances. We have already taken decisive action to address internal concerns. Additionally, we are releasing staff and former staff from the confidentiality provisions and their employment agreements to discuss their workplace environment. Based on the findings of this review, we will take all necessary action to correct any issues or deficiencies that are identified. Concurrently, we are also working with outside counsel and professional consultants to strengthen our corporate governance, finance, and operational structure, human resources, and leadership to position the Lincoln Project to further maximize our impact and lean into our important mission, advancing democracy. The Lincoln Project was founded to combat political forces who seek to undermine our democracy. We revolutionized how political action committees operate and spent $81 million last cycle to create and place more than 300 advertisements, host national town halls, conduct voter outreach, and launch a podcast and streaming video network that engaged millions of voters. 80% of our funds went to voter content production. Our historic results speak for themselves. Moving forward, we have important work ahead of us, and we have created a nationwide movement of Americans who support our objectives. In order to continue fulfilling our promise to our millions of supporters and contributors, we must address any and all internal organizational issues immediately and put in place a governance and diverse leadership structure that reflects our core values and ensures we will continue to attract the best talent available. The Lincoln Project will continue producing and distributing our popular content and commentary while these reviews are being conducted and we are operating at full capacity. Now, Stuart and Rick, I want to talk about the impeachment. This past Saturday, the United States Senate acquitted Donald John Trump in his second impeachment trial. By a vote of 57 to 43, seven Republicans crossed over to vote with Democrats. Unfortunately, it was not enough to gain 67 votes, the constitutionally mandated number, to convict a president of the United States of high crimes and misdemeanors. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to Stuart. And Stuart, get your sense of where it is we are in American democracy and just what Saturday's acquittal of Donald Trump really meant for the country. I think last Saturday is going to be studied as one of those days in American history that proves to be a turning point. 
the question is, which way is it going to end up pointing? We in, a, uh, in the Lincoln Project, we got in this thing to fight Trump and Trumpism. We beat Trump, though it took him a while to realize it. But I think what we saw Saturday is the Trumpism has now become the official voice of the Republican Party. There is no way that a Republican senator sat in that presentation, and unless you're just an absolute lunatic like Rand Paul, and believe that uh, Donald Trump wasn't guilty. I mean, if you end up having to run for your life inside your own office because a man has helped organize, at least his organization helped organize, and he inspired a mob of terrorists, and that's all these are. These aren't protesters, they're terrorists. The 9-11 guys weren't protesters, they were terrorists. And what happened on the 6th was a more successful terrorist attempt in Washington than 9-11. They got inside the Capitol. When we study how democracy in America is in 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it's going to be a turning point. And I don't think that the inevitability of the success of democracy is at all secured. And we have this naive belief in America that uh, because it was this way, it's always going to be this way. And this generation of Republican senators and congressmen, most of them have proven to be just cowards. All they had to do was say who won a presidential election. But you have to ask yourself, did they just stay quiet and say, well, we have to wait and see, because they thought that that was the best way to handle Donald Trump, which is more or less what they say now? Or was it because they were waiting to see which way this was going to go? Were they waiting to see if Donald Trump really could pull off the end of the American experiment? Now, I'd like to think that's not the case. But whenever I have put more faith in the Republican Party in the last six, seven years, it's proven to be a sucker's bet. So, Rick, just leaning on that, uh, what Stewart said about the idea that they were waiting to see whether or not Trump could actually end the American experiment. Isn't that worse? Almost, you know, post-November 3rd, post-November 19th post-January 6th, post-January 20th, and now this last Saturday, you know, they've had plenty of opportunities to take votes that would really show, you know, that they weren't going to stand for this because of the good of America. So what is going on? It would be simple and easy to explain it and say, yo, they made a political calculus. They wanted to protect themselves. But I think Stewart's right. I think there were a lot of those guys who would have been perfectly happy if the coup had succeeded, if the rioters had killed Mike Pence or reset the clock or forced Congress into a panic state of undoing the election somehow, some way, a lot of them would not change what they are and who they are on a daily basis. They'd just go on like it was the same thing, like it was the same issue and pretend that the world still existed as it had. Just as I think right now, they're trying to pretend that America right now is not still on a shaky sheet of thin ice um, when it comes to the fact that Trump compromised and broke elements of our republic that you can't just put together. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, well, it's back to normal. There is a festering wound here. There is a constant flow of a sickness, I think, on the Trump authoritarian right. And we've all talked about Ann Applebaum on the show about how much we admire her writing. And she's exactly right. You know, the bad guys have to win one time. The pro-democracy side can't be the soft side of the argument. And we're seeing that because there are people right now who, as Stuart, I think, correctly pointed out, they would have been fine. They would have said, okay, well, the, the wind blew the, a weird way. 
sure, we've given up on the American experiment, but it's all right. I, you know, I'm, I'm still going to win my primary. You know, if you went to Trump, and by extension now, if you went to Trump's senators in Trump's party, which he still owns lock, stock, and barrel, and said, look, we can overthrow the government, break the American system, shred the Constitution, but Trump gets another four years, a lot of them would just say, well, what's the downside? Why wouldn't we? This divorce from our political traditions that the Republican Party has engaged in in the last four years, and more, most explicitly in the time window between January 6th and Saturday, it is tragic, it is dangerous, and it is going to define the political contests of our future. So before I make one more point, I'd like to bring up a clip of just what it means to be a Republican leader in America today. Rob, can you play Mitch McConnell's remarks? There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. So in true Mitch McConnell fashion, he has been on every side of a turtle shell he could be in the last couple of weeks. He decried the violence and then he backed away a little bit. He called out Marjorie Taylor Greene and then he voted to table the impeachment articles against Donald Trump. He voted to acquit Donald Trump and then within, I don't know what, the next 15 minutes went on to blame Trump for the very act he had just acquitted him of. So it seems to me that, guys, I know we talk about this a lot. I'm just not sure we should be surprised anymore. But I want to make a broader point here is that I really do believe that there are two existential threats facing the country right now. One is COVID-19 and the other is what I would not call creeping authoritarianism, but marching authoritarianism. Um, and until and unless we get both under control, we're in a lot of trouble here. COVID-19, you know, until and unless we can get folks back to work, back to school, get everyone in this country vaccinated so that there is some level of immunity that allows some normalcy and a new normal life for Americans to exist, you know, we're going to be in this weird sort of stasis where some people in some states get to live their lives and others are locked down. But with the authoritarian piece, it just keeps on going. And it doesn't seem to matter to, you know, a lot of folks on the GOP side that this is what they're part and parcel of. I think that COVID-19 and what is happening with the rise of authoritarianism is exactly linked together. And they all come from the same sort of center that has become the Republican Party, the center of beliefs. It's first an anti-intellectualism. It's a anti-expertism. There's a sense that we can't trust those who have been powered by the best and the brightest by our institutions to solve problems. So we have to go to um, you know, a Donald Trump. We can't trust a Dr. Fauci. There's a sort of lack of belief in critical thinking and a sort of uh, mass willingness to embrace stupidity. Any movement that attacks higher education and becomes convinced that higher education is a conversion path to something like socialism, it's not going to end well. It never does. I mean, Look at the Red Guard, look at the Khmer Rouge when they're 
attack those who are educated. And when you look at the people in the Republican Party who are really well-educated, I mean, the best educated people in the world, Senator Kennedy, Louisiana, Josh Hawley, and they feel compelled to present themselves like morons because they know that they have no natural link to the non-college-educated Trump base. So they put on this sort of absurd act. Those are the people who will do anything to try to gain their acceptance. So they'll attack Dr. Fauci. They'll go out and say that uh, an election that was clearly won was not won, and then try to disenfranchise African-American votes. There's just this fundamental lack of any sort of core belief in the principles that made America a democracy. And it's extraordinarily dangerous. And I think that when you study the history of these kind of movements, uh, and Trumpism is a movement, they don't unwind quickly. But this is the battle. I mean, I go back to why the Lincoln Project exists and why I'm going to stay with the Lincoln Project. We don't get to choose history, but history chooses us. I mean, we come from the Republican Party. We know these people. We proved in 2020 that we had a unique ability to fight them. And if we aren't out there fighting them, it's a better day for them. And this is a dangerous existential battle for really the future of America. But Rick, look, we spend a lot of time talking about the Republican Party on this program because obviously we, we all spend so much collective time in it. But these things don't exist in a vacuum. And the one thing that I was most disappointed in throughout the second impeachment process, especially on the Senate side, was, you know, first there were senators, as we talked about in a previous episode, who were sort of like, can't we just censure him and get on with business? And then this past weekend, there was a story that a Democratic senator went into the room where the House impeachment managers were gathered and said, don't call witnesses, call the vote. We all want to get home for Valentine's Day. And I think that that could go down as the line that, uh, you know, ended American democracy. We just want to get home for Valentine's Day. And my concern is, is that there is not a level of seriousness amongst our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle that like we are not in a normal time, whether or not it is on COVID, right, which every asset of the U.S. government and state governments and local governments should be committed to finding a way to fix as fast as possible or on the idea that somehow we're in a time of regular order politically. Why the blindness? What is happening? I think there's two things. In the Senate, one of the things that's happening is these guys are so snake bit by Mitch McConnell over the years because he's rolled them over and over that they worry and they get into the, a defensive crouch before they even start to take action that they should take. And look, I like Chris Coons. He's a friendly guy and a smart guy. But and this is one of the things that was a hard shock for a lot of our liberal friends this year is they think they know how to fight. And very often they pull the punch, they step back, they think that a strongly worded letter is what is necessary when what is necessary is a two by four to the kneecaps. And so when you send a tell, like we need to go home for Valentine's Day instead of calling witnesses, no, the correct response was very straightforward. The correct response was to call witnesses and drag this thing out until the pain level started to rise politically for the Republicans. They didn't engage in any kind of political wargaming that let them figure out that leaving this thing 
in a short porch was going to advantage Trump. It told every Republican, hey, don't worry. You're not going to have people calling your office. You're not going to have people coming to pound your your phones in or, or, or email you or go on your Facebook page. You only got to last this thing for a few more hours and it's over. And when you give a bad guy a place to escape, they will escape and come back and keep being bad guys. So it's a very difficult situation for them because they frequently just don't have the fighting instinct. Well, and I mean, look, I, I would like to say that, you know, we as an organization and we as a movement are institutionalists, but we're not establishment, if that makes sense. None of us, for the most part, live within the Beltway. We've all spent our time there and mercifully got the heck out when we could. But we should never forget that the establishment is looking for one thing and one thing most, and it's stability and its own survival. And so when it's faced with things it doesn't understand, it typically just wants to move on, see it as an aberration and not as a tumor destined for growth. And so I think, Stuart, you know, given how we are locked into, you know, a two-party system, and we can go chapter and verse on why that is over the years, how do you convince enough Republicans like we did last year enough independents and enough Democrats that like you got to stand up and fight and understand that this fight is beyond election cycles at this point. It's day in, day out. It's in the trenches. It's bare knuckle brawling. A lot of it is not sexy. A lot of it is not based in policy, but you're not going to do it without that. Two phrases came to be coined uh, in recent years. One was anti-Trump, which kind of became what Republicans who didn't support a lunatic was uh, we were called, which I always thought was a crazy misnomer. We weren't against Donald Trump. We were for America. We had never really, any of us spent five minutes thinking about this, you know, ridiculous uh, figure. It was the idea that he was stealing something. It wasn't about the thief. It was about the theft. And this other phrase, Trump derangement syndrome, which is a, a common thing that people who wanted to deny what Trump was, would coin those of us who seemed alarmist. Well, as it turns out, the real Trump derangement syndrome was underestimating Trump. And that is the greatest danger. I mean, if a year ago I had said in 2020, you're going to have the worst economy uh, that we've had since the Great Depression, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans are going to die of a disease, um, you're going to have two impeachment trials of a sitting president. And by the way, um, you can't really leave the country. You can't go to Mexico. You can't go to Canada. There's very few places in Europe that welcome Americans. We would have sounded crazy. And this has always been one of the, the, the aspects that Trump has in his advantage, and that's the inability to imagine Donald Trump. So the way I look at it is I have given up on the idea that the Republican Party can cross any line that is going to cause them to rise up and stand for anything. So my view on it is you just have to defeat these people. You have to have a lot more nights like you had in Georgia, which was an extraordinary win. The degree to which that win was amazing. It was like winning the World Series by pitching four perfect games. That's what you need, because it's only through sheer fear will the party change. You think Nikki Haley sort of started trying to go a little backwards on Trump because she had some you know, moral epiphany that suddenly Donald Trump might not, you know, it's a consultant said, well, look, wait a second, Nikki, there might be a lane here for somebody 
who was with Trump, but now feels, you know, that he went a little bit too far trying to overthrow the government of the United States and end democracy. Maybe you could just kind of edge over there. These are, are, are people that stand for nothing but election. And they're dangerous people because they appear benign, like Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is a dangerous man. And if you look at how evil happens in the history of the world, it's usually not through people who look evil. It's usually through people who look like Mitch McConnell, these sort of bureaucrats, the bureaucrats of evil. And that's, I think, a lot of what the next stage of this fight is about, is keeping people informed, sounding an alarm, and not sounding crazy ourselves. Because if I said that, like, on the 5th, you know, look, I think that tomorrow the United States Capitol is going to be under siege and you're going to have, you know, senators running for your life. You would have said, I'm a lunatic. Turns out that's what happened. The desire for normalcy is a very human instinct. And I think it's something that benefits those who are not normal. So just to wrap up our discussion for the day, Rick, where do we fit in here now? Obviously, you know, as I said at the top, we've been through some things. We're learning a lot. But I still believe, in, and I've talked to dozens of people, uh, throughout the last couple of days, uh, we've seen an overwhelmingly positive response to our statements on social media. And we can only say thank you to all of those people, hundreds of thousands of you who've stuck with us. So where's our place, at least for the time being in this fight? Because obviously what I've heard repeatedly is this fight, as Stuart had noted, is still going on. And so how do we play our role in it? You know, I think that there's one thing that the Lincoln Project has done from the very beginning. And that is show people how to be in the fight for freedom and for the republic. And that really makes Washington angry. There are people on the professional left who don't like it because we show them the flaws in their operating system. There are people on the Trump right who don't like it because we confront what they represent and we confront the darkness of the future they represent. So our fight has to continue. And our fight has to be kept in a, in a clear perspective. People who are willing to do and say anything to achieve their political ends, people who are willing to overthrow our constitution, the sanctity of our elections, the rights of African-Americans and other voters to participate in our elections, those people have to be opposed. And not just with a sternly worded letter, not just with a online boycott. They have to have the fight taken to them as we took the fight to Trump. And folks, I will say this. A lot of the stuff you're seeing and hearing isn't about the Lincoln Project. It's about the fact that there's a 300-pound grotesque authoritarian failure sitting down in Palm Beach, angry, bitter, diseased with the hatred of the fact that he was cast down by 80 million Americans. That's where a lot of this is coming from. We keep it in perspective, but the fight has to go on. And the fight is more urgent than ever. And we'll be back to talk more about it later in the week. Well, Rick, Stuart, thank you so much. I agree with you 100%. And I think we're going to leave it there for today. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks to everyone for listening and for sticking with us. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google or wherever you download. Please rate us five stars. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.